Good morning. We're very glad that y'all are here, and we count it a privilege to worship with you. Let's pray, and we'll jump into the text. Dear Lord, we come to you now, and we count it a sweet privilege uh, to be here, uh, to be called your children, to, to be known by the creator of all things created, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee. We sit here this morning as a very, very blessed people anticipating the return of our Savior. And I pray that there would be joy in that. I pray that there would be clarity in that. I pray that we would trust you, that we would lean not on our own understanding. Lord, I pray that for myself this morning as I preach, that every moment of this sermon, that I would be trusting you and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. I've trusted you in the preparation of the sermon, and I trust you in the delivery of it as well. Lord, we pray uh, for a fellow church, uh, a fellow pastor in the area, Pastor Larry Allgood over at Crossroads. I pray that they are enjoying you greatly this morning. I pray that there's a body there that is keeping in step with the Spirit and sight, um, salty, bright, aromatic, encouraged by truth, remaining steadfast. I pray that their location there right off the highway would draw people there and that when they are drawn there that they would have truth spoken to them. I pray particularly for Larry as he has um, uh, spent the week in preparation of preaching. I pray that it's been a sweet time in preparation. I pray that as he delivers that message this morning, that it is worship. Pray for his marriage, that it is strong. Pray for his friendships, that they are pure and good and, and uh, that there is edification there with Christians being mutually encouraged as we build each other up with our words. Lord, this morning as we continue in our Advent series, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you um, for the shadows. I thank you for the substance. And I pray that you would guide us along in it this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. Yeah, it failed last week. It failed again. Merry Christmas. There we go. Audience participation. Fantastic. Um, last week, uh, we spent a lot of time in shadowy anticipation. Uh, we traced the story of a people, which, which we have come to know as our story. Our story didn't just begin when we accepted Jesus into our hearts. Um, that's not when our story began. Because we're a part of a people, our story began way before that, uh, really at creation. And so last week, we traced the story of a people from creation to Passover. What we saw was a shadow. Remember last, last week, it was all shadow. We came to the end of the sermon, it was like, well... That's the end of the sermon. No substance yet. We're going we're gonna to be in anticipation. We're going to feel that angst that our forefathers in the faith felt. But we traced that shadow that got bigger and bigger as time progressed. And what we saw was that God saw fit in his infinite wisdom to reveal to us the story of two sinners, Adam and Eve, in a garden, who were in need of sinless offspring. And he revealed to us over time where those two sinners became a nation of sinners known as Israelites who were still in need of the same sinless offspring. And over that course of time, all of humanity, even the, the big names that we remember, Moses, Noah, all of humanity fell short for all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. So while they anticipated sinless offspring, God did something else and he instituted a Passover. This Passover was a feast to be kept throughout the generations 
where God's people would regularly gather around a table that is focused on a lamb, and not just any lamb, but the Passover lamb. You weren't allowed to go get the three-legged lamb with one eye and say, okay, well, I don't want this one anymore. We can bring that to God. We, we brought him our best. And so he said, a lamb without blemish in its first year to be fully consumed without a bone broken. A lamb who would cause God, whose blood would cause God to pass over his people when his wrath was to be poured out on the offspring of their enemies. Throughout this story, God has caused us, not allowed us to ever really take our eyes off of offspring. So sinless offspring was something we began to anticipate greatly last week as we spent time in the shadows. Now turn with me to Colossians 2. We're going to look at the text. Colossians 2, 17. Remember as we turn there that Advent is a time of year. Um, I've seen a couple church signs around town, and it's... Let's say like Advent's time for looking back, and that is half right. But it's not just looking back, it's looking forward. And so this Advent series that we're doing is going to cover all that. We're looking back, we're looking forward, we're reflecting, and we're anticipating. And the reflecting on the shadow that came before us is explained in Colossians 2.17. This verse explains that the need for sinless offspring, the need for a lamb without blemish, the need for a blood sacrifice in this way. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Last week, we intentionally didn't get to the part about substance because we realized that it's in the shadows that that itch is developed, that the angst is understood, that the anticipation is realized. Remember the example that I gave you of our house and our front walkway where the main door's open but the glass door is closed? And when someone's walking up the front walkway, you would see their shadow before you saw them. But what was better, seeing the person or the shadow? For me, seeing my wife is much better than seeing her shadow because I can't wrap my arms around a shadow. I can't sit and share the details of the day with a shadow. But the shadow itself does something. There's, There's anticipation there. And so our roadmap for the morning is we're gonna spend a little bit more time in the shadows, probably 80% of our time this morning, maybe a little more. It's going to be spent continuing to look at the shadow, but then we're going to close with some really sweet substance. I'm going to have to do all I can not to preach really fast on the first part of the sermon because I so want to get to the substance. Last week was, I think, the first time I've ever preached without getting to the substance, the Jesus part. And so we'll get there this morning, but it's going to be at the end. So that's our roadmap for the morning. As I met with the staff this week, we sit... You know, every week we'll reflect on the sermon and we'll look uh, at, the, at the sermon for the coming week. And some of the staff, I won't share uh, which ones, um, shared a concern, and uh, I actually had the concern as well, asking, can the body hang in there a whole second week of mostly shadow? I mean, that, that was kind of hard. That was work. Can the body hang in there? Um, now, that's not a normal thing where I share what I'm going to do in the sermon and the staff's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about all that. Have you thought? No, that's not what it was like. But there was a genuine question that was, that was posed, and I had the same question. Can the body hang in there through a whole second week of mostly shadow? The implication is that it may be too much itch, too much anticipation without substance. And as I was weighing this, I ran across a quote from Octavius Winslow. I've uh, never heard of him before. Um, and ran across this quote. It's from 1844. And I thought that it would inform our time in the shadows this morning. So y'all listen closely 
as we consider the shadows a little more. He said this, it was thus the wisdom and the will of God that the revelation of Jesus to the church should assume a consecutive and progressive form. Not a sudden, but a gradual descent to the world marked the advent of our adorable Redeemer. The same principle of progressiveness is frequently seen in a saving discovery of Christ to the soul, not by an immediate and instantaneous revelation, not by a single glance of the mind is Jesus always made known and seen, but long and slow is often the process. Observe, it's a gradation of light. The sun rises, beam follows beam. Light expands, Christ is more known, and he's more known. Christ is more adored, he's more adored. Christ is more loved, and then he's more loved. Thus has been the revelation of Christ's glory to the church of God. In her infancy, she was placed under tutors and governors until the time appointed by the Father. Not prepared to sustain the sudden and full revelation of Jesus, God disciplined and trained the church by various types and ceremonies, of which we engaged many of them last week. Thus wisely, and it must be admitted graciously, showing forth his dear son by gradual but increasingly clear and luminous discoveries until the fullness of time was come, as it says in Galatians 4. When he appeared, the great antitype of all the types, the glowing substance of all the shadows, the full meaning of all the symbols, and the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person, as it says in Hebrews 1. This is a sweet reminder for us that God chose to slowly and progressively reveal Jesus to his people. I hope that's encouraging to you. There's an encouragement here for steadfastness. In a sense, as we spend a bit more time in the shadows this morning, we too are being tutored and gradually informed as we climb in to the story we have a way of thinking of this sort of immediate gratification, and, and we've let it climb into the way that we look at evangelism and how we share the gospel. Just let me tell you this, and you're going to get it, and, the, and we're going to seal the deal, uh, finalize the sale, and it's going to be done, and you're going to understand Jesus, and you're going to be saved, and I'm going to be like, yeah. That's not how it works. It takes time. Consider that God, in his wisdom, chose thousands of years to reveal Jesus to the church. They weren't ready to just see the fullness of Jesus. They needed to go through slavery. They needed to sit around a Passover meal. They needed to know that their first forefathers, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden. They needed to see what it was like to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day and then hide from him behind a tree because you were naked and you knew it. That story, all of this, in God, God in his wisdom made that part of revealing Jesus to the church. So we should be patient and steadfast there's encouragement for us to persevere and remain steadfast, not always expecting that the message will immediately be understood in its entirety. I read something recently that said, everyone who, is, who, is, um, who gives their life to Christ does so with a very limited understanding at first. That's how it always is. But sometimes we approach it as if, well, I, I did a really good job of sharing. I told you my testimony. I shared the main points. And if you don't get it, I don't know. Sometimes we can have that view, but... God chose to, to more slowly, progressively reveal Jesus to the church, and we should be tutored and informed by that. So through life-on-life -life relationships over the course of time, through our marriages, through our prayerful decisions, through Christ-centered friendships, through regularly putting the interests of others before our own, that's how we share the truth about Jesus. 
That's how we share the Christmas message in the Christmas season. So with the need for sinless offspring, the Passover lamb, the atoning blood, this morning we're going to consider the shadow of Christ in the priesthood. Turn to Exodus 28. Now rather than reading a few chapters to you, I'm going to tell you a story. And I want you all to listen closely. It's out of Exodus 28. We're going to get to a few particular verses in a moment. But as Israel has left Egypt and come to Mount Sinai, so you see Egypt leaving, you see Israel leaving Egypt. They come to the base of Mount Sinai. God reveals himself to them. And he revealed to them through Moses that he will dwell with them by way of a tabernacle. Hugely important part of our story. Hugely important. God will dwell with his people by way of a tabernacle. To tabernacle with someone is to dwell with them. Now this tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, has an east-facing entrance. And it is the very place where God would dwell with his people on earth. Think back to the garden, walking with God in the cool of the day. And in it, like the garden, there's going to be a lot of work going on. Did y'all know that work came before sin? Sometimes we need that reminder. When you go back to Genesis, we think, well, they sinned, so now I have to go to work. No, no, no. He put them in the garden to work it and to keep it, and then sin came along. Work's a good thing. It reflects the character of our God and the desire and the will of our God. So, in the tabernacle, there was going to be a lot of work going on. Lots of sacrifices offered. Lots of blood spilled. Climb in. I, I say it a thousand times. I'll say it again. Import your senses. What would the tabernacle look like? What would it sound like? What would it smell like? Lots of sacrifices. Lots of blood spilled. In fact, every Jew would have instilled in them the reality that no one comes before God without a sacrifice. I almost want us to all say it together. No one comes before God without a sacrifice. That would be a huge assumption that should never be made. That's instilled in them. You must bring a sacrifice and an offering because of your sin. And the people administering the sacrifices were known as the priesthood. And so it would go like this. The worshiper would draw near the dwelling place of God by bringing a sacrifice to the priests. You can see a lot of trust being put in the priest there. I hope they don't mess it up. Ben's talked about that before. It's like, here you go. Please, please do a good job on my behalf with God. So you bring your sacrifice to the priests. The Israelite did not have face-to-face -face access, but needed an intermediary and a go-between. And this is all shadow. The intermediary, the go-between, shadow. So the priest would take the sacrifice and sacrifice it on behalf of the worshiper, laying his hands on its head and killing it, offering it on the bronze altar of sacrifice particularly. So the first thing I want us to point out about the shadow of the priesthood that informs the substance of Christ that there were, the priesthood was regularly engaged in death and in confession all day long, death and confession. Day after day, the offerings would be killed and burned as substitutions for the worshiper. This should sober us and humble us. In effect, God is saying, because of your sin, something must die. Will it be you? Or will it be your sacrifice? Will you be burned? Or will it be the goat 
or the lamb. And here's what we gotta see about this sacrifice that they would bring to the priesthood. It wasn't for future sins. There's a country song right now, I'm not sure who sings it. Um, that's probably best. Um, but it says something like, I put an extra 20 in the plate for the things that I'm gonna do wrong in the upcoming week. The most ignorant lyric, I mean, Christian music has a lot of ignorant lyrics. That gets, I mean, that gets to the heart of it. I know I'm in Hunt County, I'm treading on real thin ice right now. But that lyric, like, yeah, I'm gonna put that into play and that'll take care of the stuff I'm gonna do wrong this, this upcoming week. That, that's never been how it works, ever, and it will never be how it works. What we see here is they would bring a sacrifice, but that particular sacrifice that they would bring to the priesthood was for sins already committed. Sins previously committed. So after you bring your sacrifice to be offered up with the confession of your sins, as soon as you leave and inevitably sin again, another sacrifice would be needed. And so the cycle would go for hundreds of years. Hebrews talks about the priesthood being as such where men would serve in the priesthood and they would die and they would need to be replaced. Hundreds of years. It would go to where I bring a sacrifice for my previous sins, inevitably sin again, bring another sacrifice. What I want y'all to see is a lot of sacrifice in this shadow. If you want to be where God dwells with his people, you take your sacrifice to the priest, you ask the priest to offer it up for you to God on your behalf, that you might be able to, in that sense, have a relationship with Yahweh. So what did the priests do as intermediaries aside from the sacrifice work? Exodus 28, 12. Read with me. We've spent some time in the previous weeks looking at the priest's garments. We've done it a lot on Wednesdays. We've touched on it a couple times on Sundays. And so I'm just going to read two verses to sort of summarize and inform us as to what they would do as an intermediary, as a go-between, and, and how we can see it in, in their garments. And in 28.12 it says, And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So if, as you see that priest, Aaron, going before the Lord, you see him with names on his shoulders. And then look at verse 29. It says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Regular remembrance before the Lord. One commentator says, when the high priest went into the presence of God, he carried with him the names of the Israelites in two places. He bore them on his shoulders. This indicated the responsibilities of the high priest to care for them, and he carried them on his heart to show the love that he had for them. Now, what I want us to see in the shadow of the priesthood here is I want you all to see God through the priesthood. See God through the priesthood exercising both strength and affection for his people. Sometimes we forget about the strength that God exercises for his people and we try to rely on our own strength. Sometimes we forget about the affection that God provides for his people and we try to find affection in other ways. Strength and affection come from our God. And what I want us to see is he doesn't just give us that strength and affection. He doesn't, he doesn't just provide through that priesthood for his people. He wouldn't do that, the shoulders, the bearing up the strength, the heart, showing the love. He wouldn't just do that in our super needy moments. He wouldn't just do that when we were having a real spiritual high. He wouldn't just do that when we were just crying out because we were in anguish because of the sadness of our conditions. 
This was a regular daily moment by moment exercise in love by our God through the priesthood. He is full of strength and affection that he exercises towards his people. And some of us need to be encouraged in that this morning. Some of us, I regularly need to be reminded of who my God is and how he works. Because sometimes I'll, I'll begin to look at the way I see the world and I'll try to fit God into that. And that's not how we're supposed to do it. So some of us need to be reminded and be encouraged this morning that God shows you strength. He exercises his strength for you. And that he is full of affection. And he's mighty. And he's just. And he's not a pushover. We're not talking about the kind of affection that a pushover would show to someone. He, he is he's strong. That's why his strength is significant for us. So, we, we have a God who does that as an exercise of love regularly. Now I want you to turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 particularly. And we're going to spend the last remainder of our time in, in this area. Hebrews 5. This continues to explain to us the priesthood and the high priest and, and what would be done in the shadow of the Old Testament. And it says this, verse, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Ben sent that verse to Brad and I and said, said elder encouragement for the day. And my goodness, it has encouraged me. And I, we're going to spend some time on it this morning. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset, beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. A number of things are revealed in this passage, the first of which we're going to look at is what else the priest does, and that's found in verses 3 and 4. We just read it. Along with making sacrifices for the worshiper, the priest is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins. This is shadow. There's substance that's different than this, more fulfilling than this, more certain and true than this, but this is shadow. He would offer sacrifices for his own sins. Now, our salvation clearly then is not found in the priesthood, is it? Our salvation is not found in the priesthood. My salvation is not going to be found in someone who when I say, will you make the sacrifice for me because I'm a sinner, and they say, I'm a sinner too. Okay, deal breaker, you're not my salvation. That's not how that works. Salvation is not found in the priesthood since they are, again, sinful offspring of Abraham. They're not the sinless offspring that we've been anticipating. But interestingly, in verse 4, this task, the sacrifices, the confession, is referred to by God as an honor not to be taken upon oneself. Now, y'all climb in with me. Pay close attention here. An honor not to be taken upon oneself. Now, I want y'all to think about this. Climb into your story again. As a priest, 
all day long. You are a sinner dealing with other sinners. You are in constant need of sacrifice and atoning blood. And all the other sinners that you're dealing with are in need of constant sacrifice and atoning blood. All day, every day. So for me, if I'm climbing into that story and I'm thinking, what's it like to be a priest? I'm thinking day one of the priesthood would be daunting. Would it not? Day one of the priesthood would be absolutely daunting. Bleating of goats and bulls and lambs would be ringing in your ears. The smell of blood would be pungent and inescapable. Your hands would be dirty, very dirty. But imagine not just the first day of the priesthood, imagine decades, even centuries of making sacrifices first for your own sins and then for the sins of every single person that you engage at the tabernacle. Imagine what that would be like. If you think your job is tedious, monotonous, I can't imagine going and doing that again. I want you all to think about the priesthood. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Constant reminder of depravity. I have found... um, I've been here for nine years. Um, I have found that in talking with people, they don't generally enjoy, (laughs) I don't know if I do either, the subject of depravity. When we talk about how how far we've fallen from grace, how insufficient our best is, When we talk about our desperate, deep need for someone else to make us righteous or to to have a righteous that's counted as ours would be the right way of saying that. When, When I sit and tell people, you're not a snowflake, you're a wicked sinner. Oh, it hits a nerve. I just, I just find that generally that's unsavory. But my goodness, imagine the priesthood all day, every day, for years and years and years. I'm just reminded over and over again, my depravity, your depravity. My depravity, your depravity. Without a sacrifice, we can't go before God. Let's, there's going to be more blood spilled, more blood spilled because of my depravity and your depravity. Now, this would weigh on me. It seems futile over and over again. Are we going to talk about depravity again? Ouch! So why would God call this thing an honor? <laughs> the priest's responsibility every day. I'm going to let you know I, I fall short, and I want to remind you, you fall short, but we're going to sacrifice before God so that we're accepted. How, why would that be called an honor? I think we can conclude this. It's an honor because it's done by God. It's an honor because God has chosen to use this priesthood. God has chosen to use this priesthood to bridge the gap when sinners would otherwise have no hope of a relationship with him. Y'all hear that? That's why it's an honor because there's no hope for humanity, no hope for their relationship with God if not for God appointing a priesthood to bridge that gap. For a long time, there would be no hope. You would not be sitting here believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord, Savior, and treasure had God not instituted a priesthood. Why is it an honor? That's why. Now, the priesthood chosen from among the needy. 
The priest is still a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy. But what we have to see is he is appointed, he's ordained, and his hands are filled with tedious daily sacrifices that are an honor because they are an act of worship that celebrate a God who is drawn near a God who has chosen to tabernacle among a particular people, making them distinct from every other nation on the earth. That's what God does. He makes his people distinct when he dwells with them. Others are supposed to look at your life and see something different because your God makes you distinct. And it's not only an honor, but it says particularly here, no one takes this honor for himself. So it's not only an honor, but an honor not to be taken for oneself. You don't appoint yourself to such a role. Like when it's priesthood ordination day, you don't just show up and say, hey, 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 one more, right here. I think I got it. I think I got the goods. That'd be like showing up at like a college graduation, something I've always wanted to do. Be like, I'm going to go ahead and walk too. I'm going to go ahead and, I, I read, I study, I go to some classes, like, like, you don't do that. You don't appoint yourself to such a role. You don't exalt yourself to such a role. It says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. It is a dangerous place to serve in such a role if you were not called by God to do so. When called by God. The priesthood was to be made up of Aaron and his sons because that is who God called. That is who God appointed God fit them for the service that he intended them to be a part of. And the thing that I love is that God used a man to do that. Notice that, that, that Moses wasn't a part of it. It was Aaron and his sons. And Moses, God said, I'm going to use a man to lay hands on these guys, and I'm going to appoint them. That's what happens when people are appointed to ministry. It's, there, there's affirmation through other people who God's also talking to. That's why it's not, hey, I'm the man. I'm going to do this. I got the goods. No, God talks to other people too. And if you think he doesn't talk to other people, you're way too arrogant to serve in such a role. Now, God fit them for the service that he intended them to be a part of. So this was an honor, but it was humbling. It's an honor, but it's humbling. There's no place for pride and one-upmanship in the priesthood. Can you imagine them sitting around, how many goats did you kill today? I killed eight. I killed nine. <laughs> what in the world would that be? That would be boasting in the flesh. That'd be the most ignorant thing you have ever seen. So there's no pr place for pride, one-upmanship. There's no room for boasting in the flesh. For each priest, how were they chosen? From among men and appointed to act on behalf of men. Now, I want you to look at the dynamic that this creates in verse 2. Verse 2 says, He, the priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, is there anyone more frustrating than someone who's just ignorant? Seriously. Y'all don't have to be like, oh, it says be gentle. I'm not going to respond to your question. <laughs> the ignorant and the wayward are frustrating. Someone comes to you for advice because they know you're a Christian. Hey, I need help with this. And you say, well, I would suggest you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, that works for you, but I mean, you know, the, what you've heard Ben say before, what else you got? What else you got is frustrating. Like you share your faith with someone, 
You're saying, I'm giving you the words of life. I'm going to take time out of my day. I want to encourage you in the truth, give you the words of life, that you might have eternal salvation with the king of kings. And they say, oh, think about it. Are you ignorant and wayward? Yes. That's exactly what they are. So, is anything more frustrating than dealing with ignorant and wayward people, people who don't immediately receive the good news that you have? People that are struggling with sin. Oh, another sinner. Can you imagine the priesthood? <laughs> Getting to the place of such frustration where they're like, seriously, didn't you just bring me a goat earlier today? Sinner. It'd be ridiculous. But this says rather, he deals gently. Why? He's beset with weakness. First, just consider the expectation that God has of gentleness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. God's not telling you to muster something that you would otherwise not have if you didn't muster it. God's saying, keep in step with my spirit. Be spirit-led. And if you're spirit-led, you're going to be gentle with people. For some reason this week, I've had a reminder of how grown men are just not very gentle. I, I, we were at Cracker Barrel, and I watched like three older men sort of bark at the waitress. This isn't right. Like, you're a wayward and ignorant person. Just, just not gentle. Not gentle. Men have a real problem not being gentle at times. That doesn't exclude women. Some women have that problem too. But I've just, I've just seen it this week a lot where you're just out and about and you just see guys sort of acting entitled, bucking with their chest out, not serving, not, not being gentle. God expects his priesthood to be gentle. According to Galatians, it's the fruit of the Spirit. So what I'm getting at is this. When a human being, he was called from among men, that's the priesthood, called from among men. When a human being acts as though they cannot understand human weakness, the human is thinking too highly of himself. I'm going to say it again. When a human being, I mean, can we all relate? I hope so. Human being. When a human being acts as though he cannot understand human weakness, that human being is thinking way too highly of himself. Now, we're supposed to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I mean, you hear a lot, hate the sin, love the sinner. So we're not waking and saying, that's okay, I get it. I'd rather be doing that too. We don't act as though we just don't get it. We don't just express frustration to people when we see them in those struggles. Now, there are times where after you warn your Christian brothers over and over again, where you act in a biblical manner to say we're, we can't tolerate that kind of thing. But there is something with wayward and ignorant where God expects gentleness. Gentleness. There's a problem when you look at the wayward and the ignorant and all you can do is marvel at their stupidity rather than offer something that may be of help. Calvin defines gentleness as one who is capable of sympathy. I like that definition. Gentleness is one who is capable of sympathy. You sympathize with the weaknesses of others. Before we move forward, I want us to consider two verses. I've already used lingo to try to, uh, I've sort of muddied the water already and sort of shown a little bit of the, the substance, but, but I want us to consider this. 1 Peter 2, 9. Don't turn there. I'm gonna read these two verses aloud and just listen closely. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, but you, Gentiles, members of Crosspoint, professing Christians in the 21st century, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's so many implications here. First, everyone sitting here, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're a royal priesthood. I had a, a handful of questions after last week's sermon asking, so does that mean that we're a shadow of Christ too? Like now, today, are we a shadow of Christ? And my answer to those questions were yes and no. No in the sense that it is different from the Old Testament shadow where that's all the Jews knew. They didn't see the substance of Christ yet. It was being progressively revealed to them through the shadow. We're on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. And so for us, it's not the same thing like we're a shadow of Christ. Rather, what we can do is we can look back on that shadow and when God says, you are a royal priesthood, we understand what it means. We're informed. So let's look at how we're informed by that. Well, first, just kind of a side note, you cannot proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness if you're not gentle. I mean, that would be one dot to connect. If you're not gentle, you're not gonna be able to proclaim the excellencies rightly of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And that's what we proclaim. That's the good news that we have to tell people. The next thing is found in Exodus 29. Don't turn there, just listen. This is the ordination and the consecration of the priests. It says, now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And in verse 21, it says this. Take part of the blood that's on the altar. You just killed the animal, slaughtered it, spilled the blood everywhere. Take part of the blood that's now on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be made holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. I think these few verses shed some light on the honor of the priesthood and the need for gentleness and sympathy. I was really tempted this morning to wear a white shirt with just some blood sprinkled on it and act like it was no big deal, because I knew that that's what you would notice, right? If I wore a white shirt with some blood sprinkled on it, everyone would be like, what, what, did he go hunting earlier? Did, did he get in a fight? What happened? Because you can have... Um, the, the, the nicest you know, outfit on and if it's sprinkled in blood people aren't going to notice what you're wearing they're going to notice the blood on you why do you have blood on you? it's obvious so skilled artisans went into extreme detail to make the priestly garments and they were so precious and then once they're on the priesthood and they're being ordained God tells Moses now go to that altar over there Take some of that blood and just, just sprinkle it all over him, all over him. But you're getting blood all over it. That's right. We're getting blood all over it. Do some more. Covered in the blood, sprinkled everywhere. Now, these verses shed light on the honor of the priesthood and the need for gentleness and sympathy. Climb into this story. As we serve each other, as we serve others each day, Putting their interests before our own, we can do so with gentleness because like the priesthood that came before us, we look down and we see ourselves clothed in the righteousness of another. We're not clothed in our own righteousness. Our own righteousness is filthy rags. That's all we got. It's, it's, it's insufficient. So like the priesthood, if we're called a royal priesthood, we look down and we see ourselves clothed in magnificent righteousness that belongs to another. What else do we see? We look down and we see ourselves covered in blood. Blood's a precious thing. Uh, my daughter 
accidentally got hit by the other daughter with a metal rake on the top of the head yesterday. Lovely way, and mom was gone. Um, and so I hear screaming, and they come in, and Livy, right on the crown of her head, <clears throat> has one of those gashes that it's, uh, it's like, ah. I remember growing up, we had four boys, so there were always stitches, and there were some you look at and be like, mm, I, I think we can get away with not having to do stitches on this one, maybe, but it just kind of kept bleeding. Blood is precious. When you see lots of it, you generally freak out. Some of y'all right now are feeling a little lightheaded maybe because I'm talking about blood. You freak out when you see a lot of it because it's precious. Now, as a priesthood, we like that priesthood, we look down, covered in the blood, the blood of the sacrifice that makes it so we can go before God. I have found also that when I hear others confess their sins, I often fall under conviction for something that may not have even been on my radar. Think about the shadow of the priesthood. Does that ever happen to you? You sit with someone and they confess their sins about not being as patient with their wife as they should have, and you as a man say, you know what? I need to confess the same thing. I was short. I didn't serve her the way that Christ serves the church. You hear a parent confessing that they want to be more steadfast with their children in regards to matters of the faith, and you think, me too. Oh, I need to confess that I've fallen short in that area. You hear someone say that they were a, bit, a little bit loose with their words and they may have hurt someone just because they weren't taking into account that you were to let no corrupt talk, corrupting talk come out of your mouths. You hear someone confess that and you're like, man, I shouldn't have said what I said yesterday. And, and you, you, you have conviction that comes about when you hear a confession of other people's sins. Has anyone else experienced that? I just want to make sure I'm not the only one in the room. Okay, two of you, that's fine. I'm going to focus on you guys. Um, uh, the, the confession of sins makes me more aware. So imagine what it must have been like for the priest. His work probably made him more aware of his sins, not less. People put these, sometimes Christians would expect to be put on a pedestal, especially leadership in Christianity, you expect to be put on a pedestal. I look back at that priesthood, and I don't think that the work that they did would make them less aware of their sins. I think it would make them more aware. I think it would send them to their knees in prayer, asking God to continue to sanctify them and make them more Christ-like. And this is why there was gentleness. The priesthood was very much in tune with the people of whom they were a part of. The priest was in tune with the people hearing confessing, offering sacrifice for himself when he offered the sacrifice for them. He was in tune with people who he was a part of. He's, he's, he can't look and say, I'm no longer a part of you. I'm the priest. No, no, you were chosen from among men of whom you are still one. Now, our weakness here, I want you to notice that we're not simply visited by our weakness on occasion that, that's how I, w I wish I could view my weakness. I hate my weakness. I hate it. It frustrates me to no end. I recently had to talk with the elders about it where we're called to boast in our weakness. And I'm like, man, I don't want to boast in my weakness. I want, I'll boast in anything uh, that I'm strong in and I'll attribute all of the strength to God. I'm not going to take credit for any of the strength, but boasting in my weakness, ugh. 
It's so frustrating. When I think of my weakness, I think of it in terms of sin. I'm like, put sin to death, put weakness to death. Here, I like to think that maybe weakness is something that would visit me every now and again. Maybe every other Thursday it would trip me up a bit. What does this say? Beset with weakness. That's what it says. You can be gentle with the ignorant and the wayward because he is beset with weakness. Our weakness is persistent. Our weakness is unrelenting. It is a daily reality. And like the priesthood, there was never a time where a sacrifice was needed for others that wasn't needed for me too. And this was true for even the best of priests. This was true for even the best of priests. The best of the best. Still, beset with weakness. This is where I want us to step forth from the shadow and enjoy the substance a little bit. I've been wanting to get to this part for like two weeks. Turn to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7.22. We're going to step forth from the shadow and we are going to enjoy the substance of Christ for a few minutes in closing. 7.22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, the ones in the shadow, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's a problem that all of us have. We're, pre- we're prevented by death by, for continuing forever in these earthly things. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, at all times, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Oh, it is very different when Jesus is the great high priest. Very different. I don't have to go and, and hand the goat over with a little bit of hesitation saying, I hope he does it right. He is the great high priest who is always making intercession for his people perfectly. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. Do you know what that means? He didn't have to have blood sprinkled on his garments the way the priesthood did. He's unstained. It's his blood that is the atonement for us. So he is unstained, separated from sinners. He he wasn't chosen from among men. He's above men. He wasn't chosen from among men. He's separated from sinners. He wasn't a sinner chosen from among sinners to act on behalf of sinners. He was one who was perfect, who accomplished what none before could, exalted above the heavens, not dying and being replaced every hundred years or so, He has no need, like those high priests in the shadow, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, beset with weakness. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made, I love these two words, 
perfect forever. Perfect forever. I was kind of hoping the whole room would go, amen. That was, uh, we got one. Perfect forever. My goodness, this is good news. Isn't the substance sweet? Especially after spending a little bit of time in the shadows? Christ bears us up. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. In fact, it says that we work with the energy that, he, that belongs to him, that he powerfully works within us. You need energy, you need strength. Go to Christ. He's sufficient. He bears us up. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. So to boast in our weakness is to boast in the cross. To humbly and gently engage others because you boast in the cross, not your flesh. He is the better Adam. He sympathizes with us, not because of his weakness, but because he took on flesh. That's the Christmas message. That's the Christmas message. Merry Christmas, everybody. Christ took on flesh. That's the Christmas message. He doesn't sympathize with us because he too was weak and he gets it. He's above that. Perfect forever. Jesus became a little baby exposed to the elements, modeling vulnerability, exposed to harshness, exposed to the cruelties of this world, tempted in every way that anyone else would be tempted. Yet, he remained without sin. He resisted to the point of shedding tears of blood. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No one else has done that. No one in here is capable of that. None of our forefathers had the ability to muster that. He became Emmanuel, God with us, and he remains with us until this day, seated at the right hand of God, daily making intercession for us until his second advent. My goodness, the substance is sweet. And not only is he the substance of the shadow of the priesthood, but also of the things that we considered last week. So rather than preaching for another hour, I'm going to share a quote. I'm to just preach for another hour, but I won't. I will share a quote from A.W. Pink. Israelite in Egypt, Israel in Egypt, illustrates the place we were before divine grace saved us. This is your story. Climb into it and listen closely. When you look at Israel and Egypt, you see yourself in the place where you were before divine grace impacted your life. Egypt symbolizes the world according to the course of which we walked in times past. The cruel bondage of the enslaved Hebrews pictures the tyrannical dominion of sin over its captives. You think Egypt was cruel? Living a life of sin is worse. The groaning of the Israelites under their burden speaks of the painful exercises of the heart convicted of our lost condition. When Israel cried out, God, save us, and he heard them after hundreds of years of slavery got so bad, finally, God, please help us. That's what you do when you realize you're a sinner. God, please help me. I can't do it on my own. I do not have the goods. I don't got this. I need you desperately. That's how you cry out when convicted of your lost condition. The deliverer raised up by God in the person of Moses points to the greater deliverer, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover night tells of the security of the believer beneath the sheltering blood of God's lamb. 
he is still our Passover lamb. We are still counted able to come before God because of his atoning blood every day, once for all, perfect forever. The exodus from Egypt announces our deliverance from the yoke of bondage and our judicial separation from the world. When it says to repent, to turn from sin, move toward godliness, I want you to picture Israel with Egypt in the rearview mirror. What did they do after time? I miss Egypt. Yeah, you're going to miss sin. You're going to think it's going to deliver, but guess what? Never, ever, ever will sin deliver. Never will you sin and say, oh, I feel so much better. It'll never happen. You'll have guilt, you'll have shame, and you'll realize there must be a better way because you're still in that shadow. There's substance that's found in Christ and Christ alone. Picture Egypt in the rearview mirror. The crossing of the Red Sea depicts our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection through the watery ordeal. In the tabernacle, with its beautiful fittings and furnishings, every single one of them, we could preach for weeks on that alone, shows us the varied excellencies and glories of Christ. The tabernacle was made of gold and bronze and silver and acacia wood overlaid with gold and fine linens and fine twine made by the most skilled artisans who have ever walked planet earth and, and they were given the spirit of God to be able to do such awesome things. And guess what, as beautiful as that was, it doesn't even almost compare. It, it's just a shadow of the glories of Christ, the beauty of Christ. Don't let Christ just be something that, someone you talk about, something that's maybe occasionally part of your conversation. Enjoy the beauty of Christ in all things. The, the supper this morning is very simple. The shadow is great, but the substance is greater. So as we take this supper, let us consider all that our Lord Jesus is for us. It is so fitting. We are doing five weeks of Advent. We're spending two in shadows and th three in substance. It's so appropriate. We spent most of two weeks in shadows and we're gonna spend three in substance. We're gonna talk about the, the incarnation implications, a little bit about prophecy. We're gonna talk about peace with God. We're gonna talk about peace with man because the substance of Christ is wonderful. That's where we're going for the next few weeks. The substance of Christ is sweet. I'm thankful for our time that we spent the last two weeks in the shadows. I'm thankful for how it's a tutor. I'm thankful for how it helps us along. I'm thankful for the patience that God had with his church throughout the ages where he said, you can't handle all of it at first, but slowly and progressively, I'm gonna reveal my son to you. I'm so thankful for that, and I'm so thankful that during Christmas time, we know where substance is found. And not just Christmas time, but every day. We know where substance is found and that we get to enjoy that together. So that's the encouragement in the supper this morning. Enjoy all that Christ is for you. Let's pray. Lord, you are... You're, you're beyond our understanding. We all sit here with finite minds, and um, even with them, uh, I am in awe of how good you are. I don't even know the extent of your goodness, but what I do know blows my mind. You are indeed great and greatly to be praised. As we take the supper, let us praise you greatly. As we sing, let us praise you greatly. Let us never 
fall into the rut of half-heartedness. But in acts of wholehearted worship, Lord, let us pay attention to all these details, all the things you have done over time, all the things you're doing today, interceding for us. Seated above the heavens, oh Lord, let us be encouraged at what it means that our high priest, we are a priesthood, our high priest is seated above the heavens, perfect forever. Oh Lord, let us be encouraged by that. Let that inform our words, our actions, our relationships. Lord, you tell us to take this supper in remembrance of you, and we have a lot to remember. You are so good, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.